0: John chapter 2 verse 13. This is now as the Passover, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples, remembered that it is written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. Uh, it's a Psalm 69, 9, by the way. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And Jesus answered and he said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, it's not just a song. It is the cry of my heart. I want to know you more. I want to love you more. I want to bless you more. I want to live a life, Lord, that lives in the delight of your delight, that experiences the pleasure of a son to his father, the love to a lover the delight of a friend. God, as you tell us in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, that you are not only in our midst and not only mighty to save, but that you take delight in us, that you quiet us with your love, and that you rejoice over us with singing. God, may we know that God today. Even in a text like this, so, Lord, give us and put us into context into it. Let us understand. Let your word burst open and come alive. Captivate us in your word. And may we have so much fun. But also, in that fun, may we really be open and available to everything you want to do in, to, and through us today here. So, Lord, we give you ourselves. We give you this time. Redeem every second, Lord, we pray. Have your way as we take this time. Lord, please. Don't let us be untouched. Don't let us be in any way evasive of anything and all that you want to do today. May your word burst open, come alive, color in the black and white, and draw us in that we all get it. So Lord, we commit this time to you now. Have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say today, please don't just believe me, don't just ever assume it's true because I say so. That's why you search the scriptures, because you want to be able to test everything by them. That's what the scriptures actually tell us, to test all things. The word, by the way, actually is a money weigher. I love the term, because it's the idea of not taking something at face value. I mean, obviously, there was a time, believe it or not, when uh, all of our money was actually worth its weight. In the material it was made in before we went to paper and and now it's like, is it paper or plastic? Uh, And so the reason I say that is there was, you could come with a foreign coin and you take that coin and you could look at it and say, well, it clearly seems to be worth what it says on the face. But there was a tried and true scale where you had a true weight where you knew what it was worth. And so you would put that on one side and you'd put that on the other to see if it balanced out. And that's what he tells us the word of God is supposed to do, that we don't take anything at face value. We don't just assume something if it's done with enough rhetoric and with enough romance, if you will, uh, and, and enough eloquence that somehow in it, it must be true. Uh, and, you know, you can sort of fabricate all of those things to some degree, but you've got to have something immovable, unchangeable, a landmark that is tried and true. And the Bible tells us it's his word. Now, here's where we are at. We're in John chapter 2, and we went from John the Baptist to the first encounters with the first disciples, and everything really seems to be running linear in our first chapter and a half. We followed Jesus to a wedding. Uh, the ministry now of Jesus, if you think about it, is in its infancy. We have five guys that we've seen that have chosen to follow Jesus up to this point. Now, we know it's about to boom, but imagine, I mean, if you kind of think about it, you just kind of, in my mind initially goes with the idea that It's like Jesus woke up one day and there were like thousands of people in front of him. And you realize that in the beginning, just like anything, you start with this sort of group of people. And the first couple just followed him because John the Baptist said, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And they followed him. And then Jesus went and found Philip as he wanted to go to Galilee. That was at the end of the first chapter. And he says, follow me. Philip then finds Nathaniel and says, I think we found the Messiah. And and Nathaniel goes, well, who is he? And he says, well, he's Jesus of Nazareth. Yahushua Nazareth. And he looks and goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And it wasn't like it was a place known for being the hood or anything like that. To be honest, there was only 60 to 120 people living there. It was a small well. of of wells, if you will. And it was really not, it wasn't even a village. I mean, what's smaller than a village at that point? I mean, just a collab of people, if you will. And and so the idea wasn't, this is a horrible place, I can't even believe the Messiah would come to me. You would just think of the Savior of the world would come from a place so obscure, and that's the idea. And I do really love Philip's answer, the one that we all should have, and that was come and see. We could spend our time arguing over this, but we're wasting time, why don't you just come with me and find out for yourself. That was the idea. And then we come to this particular event, and everything seems to be really kind of strange, especially since, if you've read the New Testament, this is our fourth book, we've read through three Gospels that are called the Synoptic. Synoptic means similar, and that's because there are three very, very similar accounts. Much of the material is quite similar and taken from it. And I recognize this particular idea of Jesus clearing the temple, It's listed in all three, Matthew 21, Luke chapter 11, I'm sorry, uh, Mark chapter 11 and Luke 19, and in all of those cases, it's really kind of the Monday of of Jesus' last week. Now, that's a bit strange since I'm in chapter 2. You know, in three different cases, Jesus has sort of made his triumphal entry, he's entered in, he's taken a look at the place, it was late, he comes back to the Mount of Olives, and the next day he clears the temple, that would be Monday. So, So why in the world do we have this here on chapter 2? That's how we start this. And I and, and can say there's two basic answers to it. I mean, one of it is an entirely separate event, which means twice Jesus has done this. Well, that's certainly possible. Or well, the other is that John isn't inclined to give it to us in a linear manner, which, by the way, makes perfect sense. Now, just think this through with me for a moment. Let's say we have two different people um, that have experienced something uh, in one way or another. So, in one case, uh, Hugo, you're sitting with Deborah, and Deborah, the two of you have experienced the same thing. The two of you were sort of standing in Camden, and a guy was sitting there waving at his friends, and overcomes the 24 bus, plows into the guy, and the two of you have that experience of of seeing that. Now. As that's the case, you start walking together, you're consoling each other, trying to figure out what in the world's going on, and as you go to cross the street, another guy gets hit by a 24 bus. And then as you start talking and you're going, this is a horrible example. Well, follow me on this. But somewhere down the line, Deborah's gonna go home and she's gonna sit and talk with Hugo. And as she sits and talks to Hugo, Hugo then says, Deborah's in no position to testify. Uh, and so somewhere in that, uh, well, he's gonna, he's like, I'm gonna try to testify, though it's hearsay. Clearly he hasn't seen it. Now, the two of you are now brought to the, te- to the courtroom, and as the two of you start to speak about it, it can happen in a very different way. But for Hugo, what's gonna have to happen in a linear fashion, because Hugo wasn't there. So he's going to have to be able to put the information bit by bit, piece by piece, and he'll say, well, give it to me from the beginning. How did it start? Well, what happened? And then what? And then what? And then what? That's because somewhere in our head, we have to put it in that way so we can understand it. Now, you, on the other hand, that's not necessarily the case, because you have all that information swimming like a tornado in the top of your head. So all of a sudden, you could start putting things together that Hugo may not necessarily do unless he's really gifted at patterns, and he sort of is. Now, and so, so you might go, well, you know what? It was like there was a 24, and there was a 24, and they were both turning, and wait a minute. I think that was the same guy. And all of a sudden, and the reason I say that is if you experience the information, you can actually do it from a topical stance, so somebody could actually stand and say, well, give it to me blow by blow. Well, you'll have to give it to that way. And by the way, Luke tells us it's the only one of the four Gospels that promises to give it to us in a linear fashion. I don't know if you know that. He said from the beginning, in the beginning of this account, O Theophilus, that's his, his uh, audience, he set to put together a, a linear account or a, a rightful account is the way he puts it. So the idea of it is. Luke wants to make clear, as he's interviewed, he's basically a journalist in this. He interviews a bunch of people and he makes sure that it's play by play. So you get it straight through. John never promises us that. And then I go, well, wait a minute. The bits that I know about John, one of the things I do know, once we get to John actually and Peter getting into the court, um, if you will, the courtyard where Jesus is being tried just inside, we read that John was known by the high priest. Uh, there's arguments over what relationship they actually have. The Bible doesn't make clear, but clearly he has some understanding. And then I start to look at this, and there's things that start to open up as I, as I consider the idea of this being a bit more topical. Oh, first of all, they begin to bloom. John's obsession with the feast. Fourteen different times he mentions the feast. By the way, that's more than all the other three Gospels combined. The term Passover, by the way, which he mentions, if you will, he mentions nine different times in this particular book and spends more than half of this book at that feast. Of the three required feasts every year that a Jewish man would go to, he spends more than half of the book at that one. And so then I start to look at this. Now, there's a particular thing at the Passover. If you were to do one today, that's called a Haggadah. A Haggadah, by the way, uh, is a playbook, if you will, for the Passover. It's sort of like Passover DIY for dummies is the idea. And so you kind of get in and go, what do we have to get? What do we have to prepare? How do we do it play by play? Okay, and now how do we do it once we get to the ceremony? And then when you reach, if you start to take a look at that, the first thing is called the mikrah. And the mikra just means the invitations. Somewhere down the line, you start sending out invitations to see who you think is going to come. And that's kind of important because it's supposed to happen in your house and you need to know, well, how much food to get, for instance. Well then, so you start. You send out a messenger to go and find out who's coming. The second thing is you prepare what's called the yayin. The yayin means wine. And of course, you want to make sure that the wine is prepared ahead of time, because one of the things, it's the only thing that actually can ferment in the house, and that's going to be very important, because if you're going to do Passover, you actually want fresh wine, because you don't want, you know what happens, it turns to yeast, and that's one of the things that needs to be driven. Then I get to this, and I realize the third thing, so I've invited my guests, I've had mehukkah, then I've prepared my wine, and then the third thing then, is I have to do what is called the chometz. Now, don't worry, I won't be doing this the whole time, so it isn't like I'm going to be handing out kippahs by the time we're done. But I do want us to get a deeper understanding of what in the world's going on here. Now, chemetz, by the way, means leaven. It tells us back in the book of Exodus, chapter 12, where Passover started, the first Passover, he said that you need to actually drive out the leaven from your house. I don't want any leaven in your house when we do this. From this point forth, every year on the 14th day of Nisan, I want you guys to have this celebration the death of a firstborn son, at the death of the lamb, this nation went free. They were set free from the hand of bondage and from the land of the enemy. As a matter of fact, you get so serious about it that by the time we get to Exodus 12, 17, he calls it the feast of unleavened bread. And if you had any leaven in the house, the house was disqualified from actually being able to perform the ceremony to this day. As a matter of fact, if you live in, uh, anywhere near ultra-orthodox, you'll find them buying feathers before the Passover, Pesach. Usually, traditionally, it's similar to the time of, of uh, Easter for us. And the reason they buy feathers is what they want to do at the end, and this is more a contemporary tradition, is they take the feather and they drive out the last bit of leaven. And you know what leaven is, right? It's, it's yeast. It's what makes a bread rice. And, they, and they're driving it out of their house to make sure that even the smallest bit doesn't exist in their house. Now, look at this with me. We started with Mikrah. That was the invitation of the people. The people were being sent and they were there. the invitations were sent out. Some were coming. Some were not going to come. Sorry, I can't make it. We're going to someone else's Pesach. Then after that, you prepare the yanyin, the wine. You want to make sure that the wine is prepared because you want to make sure you don't have old nasty wine that's completely fermented because, again, you're probably aware that that, in essence, is leavened. So you don't want that. You need that fresh grape juice. And then after that, you go in and you make sure that you drive out all of your chemets. You make sure that all of the yeast is driven out of your house. Because if you're going to have a celebration where you intimize with God, you don't want anything that in any way is idiomatic or typical of sin. And that's what Jesus often relates leaven to. You throw a little bit in, it infects the whole lump. It, f- it makes it look bigger, but it's just full of air. And by the way, we're kind of aware of that. I mean, isn't that what happens when we come to Christ somewhere? Our eyes get open, and I look and I realize so much of what the world is is just air. You know, it makes it look bigger, it makes it look chunkier, it makes it look like you're buying more, but in the end of it all, you're just buying emptiness. Well, now, please hear me. All of a sudden, I look at John, and the first three chapters make perfect sense to me. Because as the invitations have gone out, John the Baptist has stepped forth onto the scene in John chapter 1. Then the yayin, when you prepare the wine, the very first portion of John chapter 2 was Jesus turning water into wine. Fresh, good wine, we know, because that's what ex- actually the person says that is the master of the ceremonies. Then finally, after that, we get to the chemets, the driving of the leaven, and I get to this text, and it makes perfect sense. See, Jesus went to the temple because that's his house. Now, I don't want to... Uh, Belabor the point, but I do want us to get the point that the last time we saw Jesus there, if we're kind of in regards to uh, in scripture, was in the gospel of Luke. Jesus was actually if it his bar mitzvah, if you will. He was 12 years old. And where was he? Was at the temple and he was left at the temple. Do you know what the ceremony was that they were at? It was Passover. And it was there that Jesus, and if you know anything about the, the bar mitzvah, that is when a boy leaves, in essence, his mother's care and starts taking on the responsibility of learning the father's business. And it doesn't, make, doesn't surprise me that it's there that his family comes to him and says, where have you been? We've been looking for you. And he says, don't you know I should be about my father's business? That's what we do now. Well, Jesus has come home. And he's come there to go to his father's business. And it tells us this in verse 12 after that lengthy introduction. It says, and he went down to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, to, to Capernaum. Down, by the way, and we'll see, because Jerusalem is actually Mount Zion. It sits on a hill. So it doesn't matter what direction you come from, you always go up to Jerusalem. It was very important. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. Maps traditionally didn't have north at the top. Are you aware of that? Do you know actually what direction was at the top? The east. We use a term from that. When you get oriented, it comes from it being at the east, because the east was the oriented. So you couldn't say, well, we're going up if we're going north, for instance. Capernaum, by the way, is north of Jerusalem. But they're going to go, they've originally been in Jerusalem. They've head down. They've gone through Galilee, kind of Galilee, and uh, where the wedding was. And now they've gone to Capernaum. Capernaum, for what it's worth, is going to be a very, very important place throughout Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, it's going to be his headquarters. It tells us, by the way, in Matthew 4.13, and I'm going to throw out a bunch of scriptures, and I'll come hard and heavy because I want to get to our main point. This is just getting us there that Jesus went and dwelt there. In other words, Jesus, I, and it's kind of weird to think, but Jesus was in essence homeless. You're aware of that, right? I mean, he went from place to place and he would even tell us this. When someone said they would follow him, he says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Interesting, because it's easier to explain that here than it would be in America for the most part, because we have foxes. And we see them all over the place. And, you know, some other places, you know, when you've been raised on Disney and it's like they're friends with a hound and that's kind of weird, but they're cute and they're snuggly. And then, aren't they, in essence, just kind of a ginger dog, you know? And, but then here, you know, what happens is, you know, you're walking, across, pardon me for being a big graphic, you're walking across the street and you can, you realize how long cat guts are because it, a fox has gotten one and strewn it across the entire street. And you realize they're thieves. Jesus will speak of the birds of the air as those that steal the seed that the sower goes to sow. Birds are actually not a really, you know, here we hear the sound of it, and we're thinking, oh, that's really sweet. Listen to that beautiful sound. But there, if you're a farmer, birds are not exactly your favorite thing. And the reason I say that when Jesus says birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, it's like thieves. Yeah, they have a home here on earth. I don't. So Jesus would call himself homeless. But he does make his headquarters in Capernaum. It happens to be, uh, by the way, where Peter's mother-in-law lives. Now, you can't get an in-law without getting married. You're probably aware of that. tells me Peter was married. It isn't like you just can go and pick up a mo- an in-law. The very next verse, Jesus had gone to Peter's in-law's house, his mom-in-law. And when he goes there, she's ill with a fever. Mark 1, 32 and 33 tell us this. He goes and touches her hand, raises her up. The fever leaves her immediately. And that's a very good thing because he's like, you're going to need to be well because company's coming. And the next verse, it says the whole city was at the door. Jesus is, and this is the cool part, is that her house became a hospital. He went first and ministered to you and then he got you up so you can go and minister to everyone else. And I don't know what she was doing. In essence, was she kind of tending to the waiting room outside or whatever? But somewhere in all of that, Jesus is healing everyone, which means Capernaum was a crazy place. Because somewhere in it, if the whole city showed up, in the term there's clearly the whole city, that means that every person in Capernaum in one way or another has at least seen, if not personally, had an encounter with Jesus. I can understand why Jesus would hold them accountable for it when he would actually condemn the city and say, if the works had been done here, it had been done in Sodom, they would have repented. Look at you guys. Look at all that has been done. Hear me on this because it prepares us for this. Man, if you'd have seen all of this, man, if, if you would have really embraced all that was going on here, you wouldn't have just turned me into a clinic. It'll be the place, by the way, where Yeris, the uh, synagogue leader, would come to Jesus. That's the guy who heads up the synagogue in Capernaum. By the way, that's uh, Luke 8.41. That's going to be important because Jesus will actually heal a demoniac in Ma- on Mark 1.21 there. He will heal a man with a withered hand in Mark 3.1. And he will speak that whole, if you, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part in me, I'm the bread of life. That whole discourse takes place in that same synagogue. The same one, by the way, that Yerus was overseeing, the man who came to Jesus and asked for healing for his daughter. He'll ultimately raise her from the dead. It's a spoiler alert. The centurion, who helped, by the way, he will come, Jesus will heal his servant, but he'll also call Matthew, which would surprise any of us because he was known as a traitor. So this is the place where Jesus goes for a moment. He bounces there on his way down to the main point, which is here in Jerusalem. But wait a minute, it tells us that it isn't just Jesus who did this. His brothers, his mother, his disciples. Disciples, I get that. Please hear me on this. And again, like always, don't just believe me. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to develop a bit of this so we can get there. We have to have a program for everything. And a lot of it is because we've stopped listening to God to actually hear God's bespoke in, in directions to each of us. So it's so much easier if I could just hand you a, uh, a booklet, a pamphlet, a packet full of things and say, this is how we do discipleship, for instance. Good luck. Now, look, at I'm not trying to diss a program in and of itself. Because, to be honest, it gets more people involved, and I think that's fantastic. But do you realize discipleship primarily... I mean, I challenge you, prove me wrong. Read through the Gospels, read through the book of Acts, and you tell me what discipleship looked like. A disciple is someone who lived with you, and he went everywhere you went, which is important because Jesus wasn't the only one who had a disciple. Mathitikos is the word in the Greek. It just means student. For instance, Gamaliel had students, one of which we know is Saul of Tarshish. We know him as Paul by the book of Acts, chapter 13, 14. And the reason I say that is, is that means everywhere Gamaliel was, this guy had to go too. Except for the toilet, you get that. But I mean, that means when Jesus was on trial, Saul had to be there. Because Gamaliel was actually the president of the ruling party of the Sanhedrin. So he had to be there for that. So so much of the experience that we know leading up to his conversion, he would have seen all of that. Well, consider this. If Why, is, why are they all going with Jesus? I mean, Jesus' brothers? I mean, wait a minute. I realize that in this particular book alone, John chapter 7, verse 5, it says his brothers didn't believe in him yet. It tells us by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, verse 21, that actually his family goes to rescue him because he's working himself to death. They think he's out of his mind. And I realize, well, you know, one thing we haven't heard since, chapter, uh, since Jesus was 12 was Joseph. Joseph's been gone ever since. Now, we don't know what happened to him. Did he die? Did he run off? I mean, culturally, it would be weird for him to do anything but die, to be off the scene. I mean, it would be rough, wouldn't it, to have a son that's God? I mean, who wants to raise that? I mean, how, how intimidating would that be? He's like, well, you're, you know, how would you like to be his, his younger brother? Because he has four of them. It's like, well, you know, you go to school and he's like, why can't you be like your perfect brother? I mean, and he really was perfect. I mean, That's, that's rough. But somewhere down the line, Joseph's clearly gone, and which means that the firstborn is responsible for leading the family. And now mom and the brothers are coming with Jesus because Jesus seems to be the man of the house at the moment. Now, all of that said, we get to the Passover in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up, and there's our up to, to Jerusalem. You all see that, right? It's important to note that the term of the Jews is only used of king of the Jews and all the other three Gospels. The only time that we see it related to anything else is in the Gospel of John. The one that focuses on Jesus is Godhood. And I think it's interesting that when God comes to take a look at things, he sees something very different from the way he intended. Let me say that again. When God showed up at church, if you will, or in this case, the temple, he sees things very different than the way he initially intended them. Back in Exodus, when he introduces the Passover, Pesach, Exodus twelve eleven, it says, You shall eat it in haste, he's speaking of the food, and then he says, It is the Lord's Passover. Acts 12.48, it says it is the Passover to the Lord. Leviticus, the next book, 23.5, it says it's the Lord's Passover. Numbers 9.10, it is the Lord's Passover. 9.14, the Passover to the Lord. Deuteronomy 16.1, you should observe in the month of Aviv, keep the Passover to the Lord your God. In all of the cases in the Torah, God is constantly making sure you recognize that this was supposed to be something to me, God speaking, for me. And yet, we don't have Passover. I mean, we do as a church. We would just because it's fun and we watch people come to know the Lord and we dance around and we sing these songs and it's fun and we eat that kind of bread and all that. But I'd like you to consider, what about church for the moment here? Is it the church of man? Or is the church of the Lord? Is it the church to man? Do you do it to keep someone happy? Do you do it because you feel like you're obligated? It's a sense of duty? Or do you do it because you want to be with the Lord? Because... We get the idea that the same thing transfers. And it says that now God making the statement that the Passover, not of, of me anymore, God speaking, but the Passover for the guys, for the men. It has become now a religious bureaucracy. It has become now a politic, but it has certainly not become something where people realize how amazing it is to be delivered. That's what we should be doing. When you eat bitter herbs and you cry because it's horrible and you eat, you know, you you dip the parsley, the carpas in the salt water and you you go, this is to remind me of the tears that we cried when we were in bondage. So we don't look back at the life we came from and think of it as the glory days. We don't look back at that and go, remember when we were cutting it up and we were doing drugs and we were running from the cops and how cool was that? You know, and God like, you you remember that was bondage. Was exciting? It's exciting to get beat. It's exciting to not know if you've impregnated someone or if you have a disease. It's exciting, but it's not a good excitement. I mean, if, you know, one of those horror films was being lived out in real life, it's exciting to be chased by a guy with a hatchet, but it's not fun. It isn't like afterwards, like, whew, hey, I only lost two limbs. That was a good time. Well, you got one more chance to do that if you can hop away from them next time. But in there, it's like, just because it's exciting doesn't mean it's good. The same way that the Israelites would look back and go, we missed the garlic and the leeks. Man, where's the spice in all of this? And we look back and we go, oh, man. You ever see someone and they've gone out with someone, that's a real jerk. I and mean, let's not mince words. I mean, they're horrible. They treat them horribly. And they finally get the chutzpah to get out. They kind of look and go, mm, you've been dismissed. And off they go, and, and, they, and they're proud. I mean, that day is like the greatest day of their life. It's like this day of unbelievable freedom. And it's like for the first time they're walking erect, And they're looking, they're like, yeah, and things are good. And then like by the, by the time the night comes, they're like, I miss him. And you're like, What? I mean, in between now and the nighttime, it's like, oh, you know what? You're right. He did this. And he did that. And oh my God, do you know how many times he beat me? And do you know how many times I had to bail him out of jail? And you're like talking to them the whole time. And now it's like, I miss him. I remember that two minutes, that two minutes when he came up with flowers. I'm like, you've been together three years and you remember two minutes. What part of that? Is, how does that not register? How do we romanticize this when this is horrible? And that's what God wants to do at the Passover. You're like, yeah, but remember that moment before I got caught? Remember that moment when sin's fun for a season? Oh, look, and God's like, stop it. Because this is the difference. So all of a sudden, instead of imagine if we got together at church and we were like, isn't it amazing to be free? Isn't it amazing to not be in bondage to the things we were in bondage of before? Isn't it amazing to actually open up the Bible and expect God to say something? Isn't it amazing we can look at each other and be as diverse as any origin so, any origin set of origin stories, and yet we can come together, and with Christ reinventing every one of us, we can be the same. We could have the most important thing in common. Because we forget about those things. And we come in, what is this wafer for? This wafer is, it is to dip for bitterness. Eat. And it's like, and again, I'm not trying to diss anyone. It's like we get to the point where it's like, and you know, you learn to where, okay. I, I, and I understand. I was, I, I for three years, I was raised in a parochial environment. Uh, anyways, I shouldn't tell you what happened, but I will say this: that you get to the point where you learn, if your mind's active, how to train your body to know one to kneel, no one to stand, and no one to say amen and so forth, and then really get other things done in your head. So you're like, okay, okay, what do I have to do after this? Okay. All right, amen. And then I'm gonna. Okay, I'm okay. You know, it's like it's like oh, it's like amazing. It's like God's like, why did you even show up? Going on a date and the other person that's in front of you is like every place but but with you, and you're like, this is a waste. And that's what Jesus is telling us here, at least as we begin this. That this whole festival, that should have been transforming for us, for us, this is the cross. And every time we look back at it, we just polish it up and we make it silver and we're like, it's pretty, I want it on my arm. And then, But we, we forget that this was the cost for us. Then we look back beyond that at where we were before and we're like, well, it wasn't that bad. Yes, it was. And Jesus comes now and he's come home. In verse 14, you can tell it's a mess. He says he found those in the temple who sold oxen oxen isn't this the one where they slaughter a lamb well the next day there's a thing called the chagiga and the chagiga is by the way a big feast we're, we're happy with the fact that god delivered us so they sold those and they sold sheep of course that'll be necessary and doves 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 leviticus 5 leviticus 12 8 and we know it from luke 2:24. doves were the poor man's gift see the idea was is god didn't want you showing up without the heart of sacrifice And you offered something. It wasn't like you just showed up at the door and you were nonchalant and cavalier and didn't care. showed up and went, all right, God, just bless me. Here are my plans. And if I've come up, come to church today, I need to get that house. I need to get that job. And I need to get that girl. It's all, come on, we've made a deal, right? I do a little bit, you do a little bit. What kind of crazy relationship is that? And so Jesus walks into this place. And all he sees is this market. This is a place that Jesus is going to go. And and, and understand, Jesus would go on the top of a mountain to pray. I imagine to get away from everything else. His disciples would get up and they go, Where in the world is he? I thought he, he was with I thought he was with you. I don't know, I thought he was with And then they go and find him somewhere. And he's like, Everyone's looking for you and Jesus had been away praying. Sometimes he would do an all nighter. Could you imagine doing an all nighter of prayer? The older I get, I can't imagine doing an all nighter of anything. And I realize, man, if you couldn't afford something like an ox, you would, of course, offer a lamb. This one, the lamb, would be necessary. But if you were too poor, people provided you with doves, so that there was some form of offering to be given. Don't miss that. Because by the time we get to the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, by the way, had shown up with his parents, He's a baby, and when, when you have your firstborn, you offer in exchange something at his redemption price. And if you couldn't afford it, Oh, man, you offered after, after the time of, of sending a woman aside because she would given birth and she was susceptible to a lot of diseases because of the blood she would shed. Well, after that, it, in that particular period of time, well, basically after a little bit more than a month, 40 days, you would, uh, you would then bring her back and you'd bring this offering, but if you couldn't afford it, well, they just gave you doves. So at least you knew there was something to be offered, which tells me, by the way, since Luke 2 told me that that's what Mary and Joseph offered, that the wise men hadn't shown up yet. Because if they had shown up, they, one of them brought gold. That would have been enough to get something. That I means they needed a handout at the door. So now think about this for a moment, practically. So we're kind of having a meeting. We're going, okay, things are a little bit rough because you need a perfect sacrifice. So what happens with those guys in Galilee? I mean, they're taking a several-day journey. I mean, you may have started out with a decent animal, but by the time it gets here, that's a lot of time in between. So you know what? Let's let's provide. Let's provide this. Let's help them out. I'll tell you what. Let's get some. We'll get some lambs. And we'll get some oxygen, we'll get some things, and we'll be able to provide them for them so that, you know, if a guy really is like, you know, well, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm afraid of it being broken on the way and then it won't be even available for sacrifice. Sounds like a legitimate idea, doesn't it? Well, there's a couple of problems on the onset. When the first is that it's supposed to be something meaningful to you, not something you have no relationship with. And animals, by the way, for she- especially for shepherds, you named them all. I mean, this was a serious issue because you wanted to realize your sin doesn't just involve you. Anything you do that's driven by completely a selfish universe impacts everything else in your universe, whether you know it or not. And God really wanted us to know that. So now you're just taking an animal you have no relationship with. You know, you know. But it got worse because... According to the historians, by the time that Jesus is showing up here, and now he's in his thirties, that what happens is they, of course, well, now we have to make a profit off of it, so we have to kind of work that out. But it gets worse, because the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, was actually there, and he had this red swab, kind of like a giant cotton swab. Kind of thing you'd stick in your ear, only a real big one. And they dip it in this sort of red paint. And what would happen is they, they, somebody had to approve your animal when you came. So let's say poor Dennis shows up, and as Dennis shows up, he'd been carrying the lamb since Galilee. Seven, six, seven days, this poor guy had skirted the, the, the Jordan River. He'd come down what we would know today as Jordan. He'd cross back over, and, and now he's made his way over, and now here he is in Jerusalem. He's got this animal, and as far as he can tell, he has taken as good a care as anything. Now, there is no recourse if the high priest were to go, nah. no, 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 that's not good enough. I can see a defect on it. It's kind of like taking your driver's test. Well, well then in that, so what happens is, is that then they go, "Well, well, you don't want to really carry that thing all the way back. I tell you, we'll buy it to you at a discounted price because we could still do it as a morning sacrifice. And so you go and you give up your animal for a small thing. Then they would take that same animal and then put it in the bin that's now for sale to some other poor sap who's going to show up. So they've taken, they've, they've, They've cutthroated you for a low ball. And then when somebody else shows up and now they high balled, you know, Suti now because Suti is showing up. He's like, I need an animal. Like, well, we've got one right here for you. And all of a sudden somewhere in all of it, you could see God going, are you kidding me? But it gets worse than just the greed aspect of this. Because somewhere in all of this, there's somebody that shows up, like Anna shows up, or, or Abraham shows up, and, he, and they show up, and they want to be there, and someone goes, Well, well, you can't afford it. Well, we got a couple of doves, but that's going to cost you. And he's like, I don't even have that. They're like, We're sorry. You're just going to have to leave. And somebody that came to go on fellowship with God has been turned off by the door because they didn't have the money. And that gets God really angry. Jesus didn't die for you to send you to heaven. He died for you to have a relationship with you because your guilt and my guilt was in between. Heaven's just the product of that. So Jesus looks and what does he see? He sees everything is big business. Money changers because somehow what they want to do is everything has to have a half shekel because there's a half shekel uh, temple tax you had to bring. So they want to make sure no matter where you showed up they could go and of course inflate the rate like anywhere. Now, verse 15 tells us he made a whip out of cords. So Jesus sees this problem. This is his house. He shows up at home. This is a place of prayer. This is a place where we remember how horrible it was in Egypt, and we want to get out of it. And he starts to look, and he's like, this looks like Egypt. This looks exactly like every time you would show up at a place that would be a temple, for instance, in Egypt, this is exactly what it would look like. Now, for what it's worth, the term cords here is the term squenion. And squenion, by the way, means a little reed. In other words, Jesus didn't take this thing and started grabbing these giant long ropes and just turning a hel- sort of helicopter everything. These were something that basically were, were small. It doesn't really matter. What's clear is he's driving it out. And he drove all of those things out of the temple. He drove the sheep, the oxen, poured out the changers' money, overturned the tables, which would have created quite a bit of pandemonium. Of course, but notice God makes a special mention in verse, 20, verse 16. He says, he said to those who sold doves, get these out of here. Because that's where the poor man is turned away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Merchandise, the word in the Greek is actually simple. The word is emporion. We get the word emporium from it. It just means marketplace. You realize, this was a place where I was going to hang out with my father a couple of years from now, I'm going to be killed on this particular holiday. I could really use some time with my dad right now. And I'm at the mall. We've turned this whole thing into a market. So when I read a text like this, the first thing I do is I take a walk. Before I try to do anything, because it's so natural for me to want to tear things apart and dissect them because it's just who I am, but, but I always want to make sure that, there, that where's my heart in it? And the first thing I ask is, all right, Lord, let's wrestle with this for a moment because I, I don't want just the text to be an intellectual pursuit. I want to be able to, oh, I, want it, I want my heart banged on. So I'm like, Lord, if you showed up at church, what would you find? Would you find avenues or obstacles? Would you find clear shots to those you bled and died for? Or would you find obstacles to get over them? I can't help but think John the Baptist had just said in the previous chapter, if we compare all the texts, He says, man, the hills need to be leveled and the valleys need to be filled because we need a straight and a smooth path for the king to come. No obstacles for him. So Jesus found his house. And he came to his house and this is what he found. That everything had a price. Everything was for sale. Everything could be bought. He went to his house and he found it reeking of greed, self-centeredness and selfishness. He came to his house and he found it a place where all the goods were at the gate. All the action was at the surface, but deep inside where something was supposed to be happening, nothing was going on. It was all for surface and for show. He went to his house and he found it to be a place of exploitation, politics, acute worldliness, fancy show and fancy dress, shallow, plastic, superficial and inconsequential. Isn't that what he found? So the songs of praise have now conceded to the calls of the merchants. The prayers of surrender have been overcome by the buyers barking and haggling over their prices. The beautiful fellowship that was supposed to be intended now has been replaced by a meat market, a place of taking, using, personal elevation and selfish ambition. And nothing about this place resembled heaven anymore at all. I remind you, that's where Jesus had come from. And when he came home, he wanted to be reminded what it was like where he came from. There are places here in, in, uh, in London that are American diners that serve, quote-unquote, American food. And of course, the same way that probably Siti would go if he went to a Thai restaurant and he went, mm, not really sure about this burger thing. You know, it's like certain places you just kind of go, and there's certain places coming from California originally. I mean, there's, when they sort of say, hey, this is kind of a California beach feel, and I kind of walk in, I'm like, mm, not really sure about that. Because somewhere down the line you just kind of have an expectation and the reason is you've been there. You come from there so you kind of have something and as weird as it is you expect to find something familiar. It's weird. I mean to be honest if you do something that's set up in California somebody's got to speak Mexican. Not Spanish. Mexicans. Very different. And we go to church. And here's the difference. We are citizens of a place we've actually never been. Is that kind of weird? And we're representing a place we're going to but haven't come from. But Jesus, that's different for him. Because Jesus spent intimacy with the Father for eternity past, prior to this whole moment of coming to redeem us. And he shows up, and there's nothing familiar at all about this place. And that's really weird to him. Nothing about it reeked from heaven, to be honest. It was no different from the rest of the world. He found his house to be big business at the expense of prayer. The other three Gospels, by the way, which mentions Jesus clearing the temple, all three of them Jesus focuses on. This is supposed to be a place of prayer. He pulls from Isaiah 56, 7, and here he's like, you know what? I'm not finding any of that. But here Jesus is talking about merchandise. The whole thing's a market. Jesus found his house too cluttered to find a place to kneel and too full of noise to actually listen to God speak. And maybe you feel the same. You turn on the television and you watch the guy in the fancy coat waving it and all people falling over and clucking like chickens and screaming and so forth and you're thinking, man, how is God blessed in this? And Look at the noise and the craziness and the politics and though it just doesn't look any way unique and everything's so busy trying to look like the world and there's just no place to look back and go, isn't it just great to be saved? But before I grab a stone to join in, can't help but think this and this is where god floors me in second corinthians chapter 6 verse 16 and many of you may be familiar with this paul says you're the temple of the living god now because god said i'll dwell with them walk among them i'll be their god and they'll be my people and that's the part that hurts i'm honest, i'm being honest here to tell you it's the part that really hurts Because I realize I can look at this and go, wait a minute, wow, look at this clutter, and look at this avarice, and look at this greed, and look at this selfishness and self-exaltation, and look at the politics that are all about me and what I get and all that. And I could see God going, man, this just doesn't look like home, Dad. I don't see this at all, but then Jesus says, I want to make my home in you, and I look at you, and I just don't see much different. I don't see it different than that. I don't, I don't, it's like there's a, there's a, is there a quiet place to pray in that heart of yours anymore or is it still filled with everything else? I find myself saying, I'm sorry. Because if I really recognize that's me, then the most merciful thing could be what Jesus is doing and that's making a whip out of cords and driving everything out. You realize what Jesus is doing is he's purging his home so we can actually not just make it a house but make it a home. Because this stuff just doesn't belong here. And here's the weird part. All of it is religious-ish, if that makes sense. It's still all part of it. It's just not the part of it. I look at this and I realize the word that's used here is scourging and that's to a instigate remembrance to elicit confession, to uncover the truth. I mean, they would whip people because that's supposed to help you remember so you can actually give an honest confession. Well, of course, the, the Romans had turned that into a sport so that people would get beat and they would just make up stuff to make the beatings less. And I realize it's funny because his disciples start to remember as Jesus is doing this. In verse 17, they pull from a fairly obscure text, Psalm 69. And I look at Psalm 69 and I realize the first words in it, by the way, are save me. David is writing, and he's in a rough place. He says, the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the deep mire. There's no place to stand. I've come into deep waters. They floods overflow me. I'm weary with crying. I drown myself with my tears. And yet my throat is dry While I'm because I'm calling out with God all the time, and they hate me without purpose, and they're more than the hairs of my head. And even though I haven't stolen anything, they want me to replace it anyways. And he goes, God, but you know my foolishness? My sins are always before you. They're not hidden. Then he says something that really I think is so profound. He says, let not those who wait on you, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed because of me. Even though he's innocent and he's being hammered for it, he goes, please, in this moment, I would be so tempted to do so many things that are going to be clearly not honoring to you. But I also realize people are looking at me. and I don't want them to look at me and be ashamed because of what I've done. O oh God of Israel, and not those who seek you be confounded because of me, O oh God of Israel. The other thing is, is, let me not confuse them either. Don't let me make them ashamed and don't let me confuse them. Because when people do horrible things and people are like, you know what we need to do? We need to go after them. And understand, I'm a natural fighter, so everything that doesn't fight in me is actually an act of the Lord. When someone's like, oh, that can you believe what that person's doing and the rumors they're starting and the trouble they're making and the people they're pulling and the, and the trouble they're making. And you look at all that and I'm like, oh God, I got to step back and let you do this because I know this is going to confuse people otherwise. And I you know in the end of it all, I'm going to be ashamed if no one else So Jesus makes a chord. Let me ask you, would you let him do that today? Are you just calling with him visiting? Because I want him to make my heart his home and not just a really cool place for a holiday, which is almost funny because our surname's Holiday. Anyways, but it says here, these disciples realize, they're like, wait a minute, I remember. And then it gets to that text that says, huh, do you know why they're doing this? Do you know why they hate me like this? Because I'm so hungry for your house. It isn't because I'm hungry for religion or politics. It isn't because I just want to hang out with a religious elite. Or It isn't because I want to be anything else. To be honest, all I really want to be God is with you. And somehow in all of that, me wanting to be with you is sending people on their ear. And then he says, the reproaches of those who've reproached you have fallen upon me. It was if people hate you, when they see you in me, they hate me too. And his disciples go, huh? Could you imagine being zealous for the house of the Lord? Zealous for fellowship? I mean, where it's like, you know what? Sunday's not a day off. Sunday's my day with the Lord. That's a crazy thought, isn't it? But here's the part that actually, we will take a look at it with me. Now we're almost done. The Jews answer him. Jesus has just cleared the temple. He is driving everything out. He's got a whip in his hands and he's scourging. He's scourging in other words. He is scouring the temple to clean it out. And what is he doing? Just like at Pesach, just like like that would tell us, he's clearing out the leaven. He's driving out the leaven that's infected this thing and made it completely inconsequential and irrelevant to anything of heaven. And yet the Jews answer and said to him here in verse 18, well, what sign will you show us? Is that the strangest answer you could possibly get in a moment like this? What are you going to do to prove to me that you do these things? What validates you? And here's the rubbed, the grievous truth in it. I, have, I mean, there's so many routes I can go with it, but let me just say this. Jesus is flipping tables. He's freeing doves. He's scouring the Emporium. He's trying to scour out the entire temple. And all I really want is for God to do another thing for me, another miracle, another sign, another booth in my heart's marketplace. Isn't that what's happening? God's like, what he really wants to do is clean me out from the inside. And I'm going, hey, well, what else are you going to do to show me? What other cool thing are you going to do now? I want something else here so that I can embrace and tell somebody else about how cool you are, how big you've done something. And he's like, you want to see something huge and actually meaningful? I want to clean you from the inside out and make you brand new. I want to transform you because all the things you're hungry for that you are not finding because you're trying to look everywhere but me. And so we get wasted to forget. And we went from relationship to relationship thinking somehow that moment of love's embrace is somehow going to take away the fact that we're really lonely. We don't have purpose. So we'd rather carry a sign for something we don't even represent because somehow that seems like it has purpose. I'm like, well, so what are you going to do? Jesus, what are you going to do? I mean, look at what he's doing. He's purifying his home. And we're asking him to do something else. Well, what's a bigger miracle? So Jesus answers and he says, I'll tell you what, destroy this temple and raise it up the third day. In three days, I will raise it up. And Their answer, of course, is it's taken 36 years to build this temple. Herod, by the way, he took Jerusalem in 37 BC from the Parthians. He immediately declared himself king. Herod the Great was not great because he was giant. He looked kind of, He looked like the guy, to be honest, he looked a lot like the guy from The Princess Bride, if you know the one that goes, inconceivable. He's just this little, fat, bald guy. But he was brilliant in the way he built things, and he was certainly, he was a a very intelligent guy, but he was extremely paranoid. Almost immediately, he gets to work on building himself a giant place as a monument to himself. He calls it Herodium, after himself. It's concluded, by the way, in about 20, between 20 and 15 B.C., and, and during that time, he also then begins on his next project. The next project, by the way, then in 20 BC, 19 BC, is the temple project. It had been a place roughly 8,800 square feet. He actually levels the rest. The mountain was kind of like this. He levels the top of it that we know today is the temple mount. He had the whole thing leveled flat and then takes something, at most, 8,800 square feet and turns it into a place, 1.2 million square feet. That's a, big, that's a big overhaul. And the problem was it wasn't even done yet. It wouldn't be done until about 50 AD, 50s AD, when Nero was was actually the Caesar at the time. So it isn't like, well, it's, and the whole idea of it, Jesus is like this thing, and, and, and understand the two radical viewpoints on this. On one side, you've got a, a religious world and they're stuck in the temporary and they're looking at that and all they can think of is the physical. So he's like, tear down this temple and raise it up in three days. They'll use this later against him. And then Jesus is like, yeah, I'm not talking about this thing, but I want the real temple torn down and rebuilt. And there's something really beautiful about that. Because understand this. It isn't like I just moved inside of you and went, oh, cool, now I'm redeemed, I'm saved, everything's cool, I'll just wait for heaven. He's like, you know what? You need to recognize from the very beginning, my whole heart's been to be with you. And because my heart's been to be with you, I want to tear this thing from the floor up. I'm going to go down to the foundation, I'm going to rip it up, because the foundation says me first. I'm going to rip up the whole thing. And that's never fun. That is never fun. As he pulls it up, it says only one foundation can be laid, according to 1 Corinthians, and that's Jesus himself. And he lays himself there and says, everything gets built on me now. He says, now it's built. And that lean-to slum shack that was my life before that, that I wanted God to kind of remodel and sort of, if you will, do a rebar refit on, a retrofit. Instead, he tears the whole thing down because he goes, the building I have in its place could never stand on the foundation you have right now. I need something, the only thing that's enduring and durable enough to handle that, and that's me. So he throws himself down at the bottom, and then he builds upon it. And he goes, I want to turn your life into a cathedral. And know a place so magnificent. And when someone walks by, they go, whoever lives there must be amazing. Now, hear me, and we are now inches away from this. Coming from America, and especially from a Calvary Chapel background, it was very easy to look at these sort of big, modeled buildings and look at them. And, of course, the easy thing was, well, you know, that money could have been given to the poor, which sounds like Judas Iscariot. Until I had a bunch of architects come and join the church that we had come from back in California. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant people. And it really opened my eyes, because I remember asking them, so let me ask you. If someone said, build God a house, what would you build? And all of a sudden you can watch their eyes light up, many of which had just given their life to Christ and they were really new. So they didn't have a lot of the understanding. Some had a lot of understanding. Some of them, because they'd walked through um, our Bible college we had had there, had a great deal of understanding of the entire Old Testament as well. But they would (laughs) hi. They, They would say things like, it should be full of glory. It should be full of color. Because when you look at the book of Revelation, rainbows shoot out of the of the throne. So I get the idea now. To be honest, the stained glass. And it should be tall and majestic, and it should be something that inspires awe, that reaches to the heavens and points you to God. And you look at all that and you go, because you know we we, we, you know we were like, well, we could meet in a warehouse. I don't care where it is, you know. And then I get the idea though from a an architect because they look at it and they're like, I want someone to walk by and go, wow. And God goes, now nah, I am living in you. Because I want to live in you. I want to make the place glorious. I want your eyes to light up when you talk about me. I want the way that you behave to be so different from the rest of the neighborhood that you're in. that people look and go, well, this clearly isn't the normal house on this neighborhood. And it starts to shun and shame Chelsea when you look at a place that you build and you go, this, this is supposed to be a place where you go, God's here. And as much as you can feel, however you want to feel about a building, what about your life and my life? When someone looks at this and my behavior and my attitude and the life and the choices and priorities that I set, can someone look and go, man, whoever lives there must be awesome. Well, Jesus is like, I can't just do a remodel with this. I got to do a teardown and rebuild. She so goes, I'll go first. I'll go to the cross. I'll lay down that life for your sin and my sin. I'll let that be buried. And then on the third day, I'll rise again and offer you a brand new life. How's that sound to you? And he goes, and then it's your turn. Give me your life. Not just the rubbish. I'm not just the rubbish man. Give me all of your life because I'm going to make it something glorious. So he's like, this is what I'm going to do. And they're like, "One this building, this building isn't even done yet. Look at this building, this building, is we're not even done with it. You want to tear it down? And Jesus is like, oy vey. So it says, therefore, he was speaking the temple of his body. Now, you do need to recognize the physical body you possess is just a tent. It's just It's just a building. You're not a person with a soul. You're a soul with a body. And that soul, by the way, is going to check out of that place. And by the way, the older I get, the more I think, I'm good with that. And Jesus looks and he's like, I'm just borrowing this physical body, by the way, anyways, you know. The same way that I'm going to borrow the tomb. So he looks and he goes, what about you? Are you ready for that when you check out? He was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had been risen from the dead, his disciples even remember that, that he had said these things. You know what ends? They believe. They believe the scripture and the word of which Jesus has said. This is why it has to be invented from the ground up. The old man has to die, like generation one in the wilderness, for generation two to enter in. Like the nation once in Israel, then restored back to reinvent and reconstruct the same way that I must die and a new man must be resurrected. It tells us, by the way, we're buried with him in baptism, raised in the newness of life. We are raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we should walk in the newness of life, for goodness sakes. To the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, well, it's the same when it dwells in us. And if he raised Christ from the dead, will he not also give life to our mortal bodies? To the spirit that dwells in us, and that's the message of the Christ, the cross. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. And here's my question as we go to prayer now. Have you said yes? Have you said yes to this offer? Or are you just trying to make God your bellhop still? Still trying to basically get him to move into your neighborhood next door so anytime you need a cup of sugar, whatever that is in your life, you can just go and knock on it. Because I'll be honest, in the beginning that was mine too. I was like, yeah, I get it. I totally want forgiveness. I don't want to stand before God guilty. That's a no-brainer. I don't want to go to hell. That's a no-brainer. Jesus is like, but I, I, I'd really like more, please. Because I really want to turn you into my art project. And for that to happen, I'm going to have to start cleaning this thing from the inside out. And you know what I'm going to drive out from you? I'm going to drive out all those things so that somewhere inside there's such a peace that you can pray and, and actually do more than just talk at me. You can listen and you can hear me talk to you too. Man, I would love that. So if that be the case, would you be willing, if, you've, if you have accepted the the gift of Jesus, are you want to say, all right, Lord, you don't even have to grab the cords. You just point and move because I don't want these things established. Remember when Greenwich, or Greenwich, remember when Camden was just a bunch of tables at the market and then they turned it into booths and you know, that's like one step away from it basically just being a building. Oh, the reason I say that, it happens in my heart too and yours as well. There was a table at once and it was just something to sort of set up and said, well, you know, it's just another little thing. It's Christian-ish, you know, it's close enough. And then it becomes a booth and then it becomes a hut and then that hut becomes a building and then Jesus has to actually, you know, cyclone the whole neighborhood of your life instead of just flip a table. So look, at if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, I just want, if you'll join me, because I'm going to pray that dangerous prayer, God, just clean it all out because I want it to be a place of prayer. I want it to be a place that's not an emporium, but rather a sanctuary because it's going to be one or the other. But if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus or maybe you're not sure, you can today. The Bible says if you're willing to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, you'll be saved. But what you do is you give Him more than just Jesus save me. You give Him permission to reinvent. That's the Lord part. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know this has been dark and heavy at parts. Lord, I also recognize it's been very real. And I just pray, Lord, for every one of us here, myself included, God, that we would really hear your voice right now telling us what we really should do. And I pray first that there be anyone within the sound of this voice who is not sure that they have or sure that they haven't said yes to your gift. Oh God, please, today, please, make that choice right now. And if that's you, just pray this prayer with me. God in heaven, I do stand before you guilty on my own merit and my righteousness is but filthy rags before you, but I believe you love me so much that you would send Jesus to die on my stead so that all of my guilt could be punished on the shoulders of your son so that my bill could be paid, my crimes could be punished, my filth could be cleansed. So I could say yes. Now, and I do. Not just to forgiveness, though I do say yes to that. Not just to the ransom, I say yes to that. Not just to the cross, though I say yes to that, but also to the resurrection where I am a new creation in you. The old passed away and the new come. God, make me new now and I give you permission to be the architect of my reinvention. God, now make me yours, I pray. I am yours. Please, have me in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I say to you a confident resounding. Amen. God, you hear our prayers. You hear our amens. And I pray for every one of us here, Lord, myself included. We just want to do something dangerous, Lord. Talk about adrenaline. This is this is so much better than bungee jumping, God, because we jump and we stay jumped. Lord, we are launching ourselves to this. Lord, we give you permission to cleanse every area and turn what is an emporium into a sanctuary. Turn what is a cluttered mess into a house of prayer and make our lives now your home. Jesus, in your name. Amen.